0: Hi, this is Emily Stimson-Chapman, and welcome to the audio version of my weekly newsletter, Through a Glass Darkly. As you have obviously noticed since you're listening to me talk, I decided to do things a little differently this week and record an audio version of today's newsletter q and I do an audio version of every essay that goes out to full subscribers, but not normally these free weekly versions. Today's Q&A, however, required a few more words than normal and I know for many of you it's easier to find time to listen than to read. So if you fall into that category, I hope this audio version helps. It just contains the reader Q&A though, not the reflection and questions for our space salve study or this week's five things that I'm loving. One of those things being a new recipe that I'm sharing for the first time in this week's newsletter. You'll only find those things in the print edition which is also in your inbox. Now, for the questions. This week, there are only two, but I wanted to answer them well. And for the second one, that took some time. So let's begin with the first one. Uh, A reader wrote in a few weeks back asking, as a Catholic, are there certain TV shows that I just shouldn't watch? Okay. Uh, Like so many parts of life, this is one of those areas where the church does not micromanage us she gives us principles and wisdom, then leaves it to us to apply those principles and wisdom in the context of our own circumstances. To find what those principles and wisdom are, probably two of the best places to start are Pope St. John Paul II's Letter to Artists and the Second Vatican Council's Decree on the Media of Social Communication, intermorifica Both primarily address the responsibilities of artists, those who create the books, movies, music, and television shows which we consume. But they also suggest certain questions the rest of us can ask to help determine the moral value of what we consume. Questions like, does this work recognize and uphold the moral order? Does this work serve the common good? Does this work respect the human person? And when depicting sin and evil, does this work still show some restraint so that it doesn't end up glorifying evil or arousing sinful desires like lust, anger, greed, etc. The church does not expect every movie or television show to be Pollyanna. Sin is real. It's part of the human experience. Darkness is real. So many of us live in it. And depictions of sin and darkness in art Intermorphica says, serve to bring about a deeper knowledge and study of humanity and with the aid of appropriately heightened dramatic effects, can reveal and glorify the grand dimensions of truth and goodness, unquote. Jean-Paul II likewise recognizes that, quote, even when they explore the darkest depths of the soul or the most unsettling aspects of evil, artists give voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. Nevertheless, well, the church doesn't expect everyone again to be Pollyanna, she does have concerns about people ordinarily and without thought consuming as entertainment things which make evil seem good and good evil. She worries about us consuming art that undermines the essential values of a healthy society, values like love, faith, marriage, friendship, sacrifice, service, generosity, prudence, temperance, courage, and kindness. She likewise worries about us consuming anything that dehumanizes others, that reduces people to objects for us to mock, ridicule, envy, or lust after. And she worries about us depicting evil in such a way that we feel drawn to it or that others are disrespected in the process of depicting it. The church worries about all this because she understands the power of art, of images and stories and music. She knows art can move what policies and politics and preaching can't, speaking to us on a level that doctrine doesn't. It touches our hearts and souls, sometimes bypassing our reason entirely. Good art has the potential to make us better people, holier, wiser, more loving, more docile to the movements of the spirit. And bad art has the potential to make us worse people, more greedy, more foolish, more lustful, more vengeful and ultimately faithless. Given all that, in the context of television, like with all art, it's important to take the church's guidance seriously. We need to be discerning about the messages being communicated by what we watch, how those messages are being communicated, and what is being asked of the people involved in the making of those shows. Just because the actors, contestants, or participants in certain shows have consented to sex scenes, dangerous activities, or being made ridiculous— doesn't make it okay. It's never okay. Discernment has to go beyond the content of the show though. Like Different people will be affected differently by different depictions of sin. So we also have to discern how we are being affected by the shows we watch. How do our favorite shows affect the way we view others or talk about others? Are we objectifying the people on them in some way? Are we becoming desensitized to sin as we watch them? Are they in some way leading us into sin? Just because the church doesn't issue an annual list of banned shows doesn't mean everything on television or at the movies or on the radio is okay. It's not. There is a lot of morally problematic programming with little to no redemptive value that nobody should be making or watching. Much of what our culture offers up to us is like food tainted with arsenic, slowly poisoning us without us even realizing it. But... There's also a lot of good television programming out there, programming which isn't perfect, but which can entertain us without harm, instruct us, amuse us, or deepen our understanding of God, man, and the world in some way. It's up to us to separate the weak from the chafe, and that's what the Church expects of us, to be mature, thoughtful disciples, capable of discerning good from evil and right from wrong. She gives us guiding principles to follow, then trusts us to do the rest. All right. Second question, and the one which necessitated an entire audio recording today. Many, many readers have written in a version of this question over the past few months. What are your thoughts on the Harry Potter books? Will you let your kids read them? Now. Talking about Harry Potter online always strikes me as a thankless endeavor. People have such strong opinions about the books, and nobody ever seems to change their mind. To make matters worse, many of the people who have those strong opinions have never read the books. Their opinions have been formed by others, some who misrepresent what the books contain, and others who don't seem to understand the nature and purpose of fiction. That makes a fruitful discussion Difficult. Nevertheless, I have gotten so many questions like this over the past several months, um, usually three or four every time I do and ask me anything on Instagram, that I'm going to take the time this week to answer their question in depth. That way I can just refer back to this answer when the question comes up again. First though, I will be transparent. There is a reason I paired the first question I answered today with this one. Whether or not Catholics should read the Harry Potter books is one of those decisions the Church leaves up to individual Catholics. My opinion on the books is not authoritative. Neither is your priest's opinion, your best friend's opinion, or a celebrity exorcist's opinion. None of us at the magisterium, and the actual magisterium, has said nothing on Harry Potter. So the decision about whether or not these books are worthy of your family's time is up to you. To help you make that decision, though, you have the questions drawn from John Paul II's Letter to Artists and Morifica. Does this work uphold the moral order? Does this work serve the common good? Does this work respect the human person? Does this work glorify evil? After asking those questions, it's possible that two faithful, well-educated, spiritually mature disciples could come to two different conclusions about the book. It is equally possible the books to have an overwhelmingly positive effect on one person, leading them to a deeper understanding of goodness, free will, human nature, and the communion of saints, and have a bad effect on another person, isolating them from reality, feeding an unhealthy interest in fantasy, and leading them down a dark hole away from truth. This is true of many books, though. There is no shortage of New Age pagans who dress up like Gandalf, it's also true of most things. There is very little in this world that God can't use to draw us to Himself, just as there is very little in this world that the devil can't use to draw us away from God. I have seen the devil use the Latin Mass and social justice work to twist people's souls up into knots. So if He can do that with such good and holy things, no one should be surprised by what He can do with a series of children's books. Just the same, we need to judge the books on their merits, not on the spiritual lives of the 1 billion people who've read them. Some of whom have gone on to become holy priests, faithful apologists, and your favorite Catholic Substack writer. Others of whom whom have gone have gone on to become drug addicts and sex fiends and unbalanced dudes living in their mother's basement. Importantly, almost all of those people have become those things for reasons that have nothing to do with Harry Potter. No series of books, no matter how popular, can match the influence of family, friends, and faith on a person's moral and spiritual development. So let's do what I said we should do and assess the books on their merits. Or at least let me share with you how I have assessed the books on their merits. Now, I was a latish reader of Harry Potter. Um, I was in college when the first book was published and much more interested in finding a job than reading a children's book. Those were also the years in which I traveled in evangelical circles. And evangelicals were not what you would call fans of Harry Potter back in the late 90s, early 2000s. For years, based on the opinion of other women who had never read the books, I assumed the series was dark and evil and yet another sign that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. Then I started meeting people who thought otherwise. Faithful people, intelligent people, literary people. They raved about the books and convinced me I should not have such a strong opinion against them without doing my own research. I decided they were right and picked up the first book with deep skepticism and concern. 4 days later, after I'd somehow finished the first 4 books in the series in record-breaking time, I was as enthusiastic about them as my friends. Since then, I have reread the books many times, always applying whatever new theological knowledge I've gained to my assessment of them, and I continue to enjoy them. I do plan to share them with my children, just not for a while. In my judgment, while books one and two are perfectly fine for younger kids, maybe ages eight to 10, the books that come after those deal with increasingly weighty topics and emotions, and I don't think the latter five are appropriate for anyone under the age of 11 or 12. I also don't think those books are perfect books. At times, especially in the later ones, the writing gets loose and sloppy, and there are way too many words spelled out in all caps. It seems like the more successful the books became, the less Free Rowling's editors felt to edit. I also wish she had left out religious holidays from our world, like Christmas and Easter. It seemed odd to have magical people celebrating Christmas and Easter, but never referencing Christ or God or any higher power at all as they combat evil. It was faulty word world mixing. Um, beyond that, though, I think the books are delightful. The plotting is wonderful. The characters real. The stakes high. The mystery is captivating, and the suspense biting. Rowling Rowling is also among the very best authors when it comes to world making. The food her characters eat, the drinks they drink, the games they play, the stores where they shop, the banks where they bank. She makes it all seem not only real but familiar, almost like a home to which you've never been but somehow know just the same. No, the books are not Shakespeare or Tolstoy, but they are their own wonderful thing and deserving of appreciation for that. But what about the Church's criteria? How do they measure up? In my estimation, they do all the things the Church says good art should do. They uphold the moral order. So murder, vengeance, lust, pride, and greed are bad. Bravery, fidelity, service, sacrifice, and humility are good. And they also promote values and institutions that serve the common good. Values and institutions like loyalty, courage, selflessness, forgiveness, kindness, family, friendship, and marriage. They treat the human person with great reverence, never objectifying even the bad characters. And they never glorify evil evil is clearly ugly and repulsive. Good is clearly compelling and attractive. The books never have you rooting for the bad guys to win, only to change their minds and choose the good. Rowling possesses keen insight into human nature, and I appreciate her understanding of how complex people are. We're not storybook characters, all good or all evil. We're fallen creatures with conflicting desires which often lead us to do good things and bad things simultaneously snape can be jealous and suspicious and prejudiced but he's also capable of great love and sacrifice dumbledore can possess great kindness and wisdom but he also makes terrible errors in judgment for all the fairy tale like enchantment in the books they are still deeply human shedding light on who we are as human persons Fallen, but still made in the image of God. I also appreciate how Rowling highlights the importance of free will. God has given each of us the power to choose who we will become. Our end is not predetermined. Our character is not fixed from birth. It's formed by the choices we make. Choices for God or against God. Each of us ultimately gets to choose heaven or hell And you see that idea play out over the course of all seven books, as Voldemort, Harry, and all the characters in the books make choice after choice for and against the good. It's those choices, not some vague mystical idea of fate, which lead one man to become the story's villain and another to become the story's hero. The books are not Christian allegories, yet they are still shaped by a Christian worldview. The story begins with the salvific sacrifice of a mother giving her life for her son, and it ends with another Christ-like sacrifice as one character offers, offers his life for others and is, in a sense, resurrected. The call to communion, the graces that come to us through the communion of the saints, the power of free will, the importance of discernment, and the transforming power of family life are all central components of the book. Because of that, I think they can be rich and wonderful tools in the hands of parents who want to form their children for a life of virtue. But, 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 but what about the magic, right? How do I reconcile that with the church's criteria? Isn't the use of magic a rejection of the moral order, a blow to the common good, a denigration of the human person, and a glorification of evil? Well, it would be if the Harry Potter books were based on a true story, but they're not. They're fiction. Magic in real life is always evil. It violates clear prohibitions in both the Old Testament and New. Magic in fiction, however, is different. Depending on the type of magic it is and the role it plays in the story, it can be just as bad as magic in real life. Or it can be a morally positive storytelling device that allows the writer to weave both a world and a tale that couldn't be told nearly so well without it. That's why fiction writers have been including magic in their stories for as long as there have been fiction writers. The wonderful Alan Jacobs wrote an essay in First Things about this question way back in 2000, and his insights still hold true. Um, Basically, he explains that the magic of Harry Potter Is not the magic of Wicca. Okay. No one is worshipping the elements and Mother Earth. Nor is it the magic of those who worship Satan. Okay. No one is offering tribute to any supernatural power of any kind. There are no real spells, just Latin words. Magical powers can never be acquired, only mastered. The dragons are not friendly, and there is not a demonic power to be found on any of the thousands of pages Rowling wrote. Instead, Harry Potter is a series of fantasy books, and the magic in the story is fantasy magic. Fantasy magic serves as a storytelling device. It's often used as a metaphor for growth, virtue, maturity, or control. In Harry Potter specifically, it's connected to the importance of free will I wrote about earlier. Jacobs explains, quote, In this sense, the strong tendency of magic to become a dream of power on the importance of this point, Lynn Thorndike, Keith Thomas, and C.S. Lewis all agree, makes it a wonderful means by which to focus the theme of the choices that gradually but inexorably shape us into certain distinct kinds of persons. Jacob then adds, Christians are perhaps right to be wary of an overly positive portrayal of magic, but the Harry Potter books don't do that. In them, magic is often fun, often surprising and exciting, but also always potentially dangerous. End quote. Rowling doesn't include magic in her stories to glamorize evil or promote the occult, and the type of magic she employs does neither. Rather, Rowling uses magic to help build an enchanted world, where magic then becomes an occasion for exploring questions like How do we fight injustice without becoming unjust? What roles do education, family, and community play in forming people who use their gifts to serve others? What people or values are worth dying for? And how do our individual choices shape who we become? As a tool used in that way, Rowling's fantasy magic does uphold the moral order and common good. It doesn't seek to make gods of men, and it demonstrates that the misuse of power is something to be avoided, not embraced. This doesn't mean it does that perfectly, though. While writers like Lewis and Tolkien went out of their way to distinguish their wizardry from ordinary humans and keep magic in mythical realms, Rowling lets hers mix somewhat more into ours. The wizarding world is separate from the muggle world, but they still coexist which means her wizards are working magic in a world governed by Christian moral law and its prohibitions against witchcraft. I think a good argument can be made that Rowling should have drawn stronger and clearer boundaries between the wizarding world and the muggle, non-magical world, in order to reinforce the idea that magic wielded by non-magical people, i.e. real people, is a dangerous and evil thing. But The danger of magic in the wrong or untrained and unwise hands is still always clear, and boundaries still do exist within the book. Muggles can never acquire magic, not by any means. It absolutely cannot be learned by non-magical people. Occultish practices like divination and fortune-telling are depicted as foolish, and astrology is the particular wisdom of the centaurs, mythical creatures who exist in the Potter world, but not our own. Beyond that, The magic in the book is so clearly fantasy magic, with broomsticks and wands and one-word Latin spells, not occult magic, that for most readers, that boundary is clear enough. But perhaps your child is not most readers. Perhaps your child is lonely and struggling and already has an unhealthy interest in the occult. Perhaps reading Harry Potter will draw them deeper into that world. That again is why the church leaves it to you to make the call. Not every book is for every person, and Harry Potter might not be the best book for your child to read, at least not right now. Ultimately, if you haven't read the books and are trying to decide if they're a good fit for your children, I would just urge you to read them for yourself. Make up your own mind about them using the guidelines mentioned above, If you decide they're not right for your family, you'll be able to explain your decision to your children with reasons that are grounded in fact, not in all the ridiculous rumors and untruths so often repeated about the books. And if you decide they are fine for your kids, it's all the better that you've read them because then you can discuss the books with your children and draw out many of the wonderful lessons they contain. Demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. There are real attacks being made on us and our families every day. Occult books and toys, along with all New Age practices and crystals, should never be welcomed in our homes. If we've dabbled with those things in the past, we need to confess that as a sin and talk with a trusted priest about how those things might still have some hold on us now. But... We also need to use the brains God gave us and make distinctions between the magic in the craft and the magic in Narnia, the magic in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and the magic in Harry Potter. We also need to stop spreading unfounded rumors and blatant lies about J.K. Rowling, who did not go to witchcraft school or serve as the devil's handmaiden in writing the books, and stop spreading lies about her books which do not contain real spells or glorify the occult. If we have criticisms of the book, those will be best heard if we make them intelligently and reasonably and avoid sounding like we're guests on the 700 Club. Most of all, we need to not invest so much energy in fighting about a series of books that is over 20 years old that we end up missing the much more real and direct attacks coming at us every day. To paraphrase my friend, Dave Van Vickel, who is one of the greatest experts on spiritual warfare I know, if you are worried about the devil coming after your child, worry more about their cell phone than Harry Potter. Thank you for listening to the Question Box portion of my weekly newsletter, Through a Glass Darkly. For more content, including our ongoing study of Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical, Space Salve, links to what I'm reading and listening to, plus an all-new recipe just for subscribers to this newsletter, please check out the print version. And if you're enjoying these weekly newsletters and not yet a full subscriber, I would love it if you upgraded your subscription. I'd also love it if you shared this recording or the newsletter with anyone who you think could benefit from it. Just click the share button in today's email. And P.S., if you haven't yet, do listen to The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, linked in today's print edition. It's mostly about the intense opposition Rowling has encountered from transgender activists, but Megan Phelps Roper's interview with Rowling—our interviews with Rowling are so illuminative about the character of Rowling herself, and I think it will be quite helpful for you when it comes to dispelling some of the unfounded rumors about her and her books. Thank you again for listening.